0: Hey, everybody, it's uh, Colton Samba again, and I'm proud to present our fifth podcast in our Women Transforming Me Manufacturing series. Um, I'm here today with Dana Aerosmith, General Manager of our Nashville branch. Dana, how are you doing?
1: Greetings from Nashville, where the weather is better than where you are. <laughs>
0: yeah, it absolutely is, but that's uh, all right because we have an extremely exciting guest today um, to kind of bring us along her entrepreneurial journey, Elizabeth Gubert Howe, a former Dean Houston client and now CEO of Pacific Dye Casting Corporation in Portland, Oregon. After graduating from Portland State University, Elizabeth began her career with a decade in management at Starbucks, then spent her next 11 years at Dover Corporation, where she jumped in in the HR department, but then quickly made a pivot. To become the director of sales and services at Midland Manufacturing and then rose all the way to general manager of PDQ Vehicle Wash Systems. But that's really only the start of the story. We'll have you tell, have her tell you the rest. So, Elizabeth, how are you doing today?
2: Hey, great. Colton, Dana, I'm really excited to be here and thanks for having me.
0: You know, looking a little bit at, at your history, I mean, you worked for two of the leading. Manufacturing companies in their respective spaces, um, you know, with Midland and then PDQ on the the vehicle wash side. And about a year ago, you decided to make the jump into entrepreneurship and went and acquired your own company with Pack Dye. Um, one, maybe tell us a little bit about Pack Dye, but also what inspired you to make this jump from working for these massive companies to I guess, taking over your own ship and driving.
2: Yeah, no, Colton, that's a great question. Uh, A little bit about Pacific die casting. So we are a small company in Vancouver, Washington, and we do a lot of die casting and we do a lot of finishing. So polishing, plating, machining, uh, those types of things. I think uh, it was quite a leap from a big, giant company and leaders in the spaces, as you said, to kind of a smaller, uh, more entrepreneurial role. And I think the thing that led me to do it was in the back of my head for maybe five or seven years, I'd always been saying, I wanna do something on my own. I wanna run my own thing. I wanna be able to create a culture, not only with the customers, but with the employees that I want. And an opportunity presented itself and I just jumped.
0: um, So, I mean that's got to be kind of like a, a a nerve-wracking experience maybe not I don't know I uh but what what made you feel prepared like what lessons from those big companies you know did you take and say all right now's the time to do it we're we're going to make this happen First of all Colton
2: the scariest thing of my entire life okay <laughs> I risked everything. I wasn't born wealthy. Okay. I literally took all the money that I had saved for working at these corporations and poured it into this. So if this doesn't work, it's not ideal. Right. So, uh, yeah, a very, uh, big leap of faith. However, to your point, I felt really, really prepared Uh, to be able to do it. There's so many great lessons that I learned working in, I would say, two really great corporations, both Starbucks and Dover, about process, about scale, about running a business, about customers, about people, all kind of the big umbrella things that just an entrepreneur right off the street maybe doesn't understand or hasn't had experience or exposure to. So I felt really, really well-prepared, um, and at the, end of, at the end of the day, I think the thing that made me feel the most comfortable was that I had made big career leaps in the past, and I'd always figured it out. I would argue that I was never prepared for any job, if we want to be really frank about it, right? Uh, I, after I left Starbucks, I was prepared for every job I ever had at Starbucks, but after that, I was never once prepared. I got a job in HR after that. I didn't know the first thing about that. Yeah. I went to college and they tell you some classes, but those are useless. Right. I had to learn on the job. Uh, then when I took a leap into sales, uh, I knew nothing about, I mean, they would use words. I didn't understand like, Oh, what's the filter for, I was literally Googling like sales words at nighttime, like trying to figure out how to do my job before anybody like figured out that I didn't know what I was doing, you know? And then when I went into general management, sure you you have all the fundamentals and you know, the strategic underpinnings to do the job, but you're never really prepared, right? And in all these different moves, not only was I switching functions, I was uh, switching markets, right? So I fundamentally became really, really secure in my ability to be able to learn really quickly and ask the right questions. And fundamentally understand value creation in each different place that I was in. You know, when I was in HR, what was important to the business? When I was in sales, what was important to the customer? When I was uh, running a different company, you know, it's like how do we differentiate ourselves? What makes us important? And I think all those skills transfer into anything that you're going to do.
0: Yeah, well, it really sounds like that—that that historical openness to like new professional experiences gave you so many perspectives, you know, and, and I don't know, it sounds like maybe that made it a little bit more palatable to, to own a company because you'd seen so many different slices of the, the professional sphere. I mean, that's super interesting.
2: I would say I had become very comfortable being uncomfortable right? I constantly didn't know what I was doing. I constantly was having to reach out for help and ask, hey, how did you do this? What are your best practices? Which I think are really, really critical if you're going to make the leap of faith and do it on your own.
1: You know, it's funny you should say that because my screensaver is if someone offers you an amazing opportunity and you're not sure how to do it, say yes and figure out how to do it later. Yeah, so That's uh, that is just those are words that I live by and uh, it's good to hear that you share that inspiration. So I want to ask you, you know, being a new CEO presents a ton of challenges to anyone. You became a new CEO in 2020. (laughs) which was when, uh, you know, CEOs globally were faced with so many challenges. So I've got kind of a two-part question for you. You know, the first part is what were your leadership goals? You've mentioned culture and some other things in your, your intro. What were your leadership goals when you took over at Pack And then how did you have to adjust Um, as 2020 unfolded, or were you pretty much able to stay the course?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, 2020 was difficult for everyone. I'm going to just like compile and make the story even more dramatic. Uh, I moved here for Chicago. I was recently married. My husband works with me, and we decided pre-pandemic, it was a great time to um, buy a fixer-upper and completely destroy it and live with my parents. Um, So that was just like, the greatest part of 2020 was, uh, you know, running a company where the customers had dissipated, um, being newly married and living with your parents uh, during quarantine. <laughs> your husband. So uh, the challenges were wide, but let's stick to the leadership question. Um, but yeah, in all seriousness, uh, 2020 was a pretty challenging year for us. About 50% of our business is concentrated in automotive. We're a tier one supplier to automotive. So in March, um, when that went away, 50% of our business like that, gone, right? I mean, within, within the blink of an eye, one day we were making parts, the next day it was like, no, we're not taking parts, have a nice day. I think initially um, when we bought the company, of course, everybody has a list of goals, but I think the thing that was most important for me um, was that I wanted to build a great team because great teams can do anything right? They're nimble. They can move. If you build a great team, you can adapt. And I think globally and just everything in the world is changing so fast that if you don't have a great team that can pivot and can move and can change course and adapt to the, the customer needs, what the employee needs, uh, you're never going to be able to compete, right? So I think initially that fundamentally was the goal is that, hey, we want to build a great team so that we can make great products and support our customers, whatever that may be. You know, I didn't have a goal like we want to be the best die casting company in the world or we want to be, you know, the global leader in, you know, manufacturing metal parts. Um, It was it was much broader than that. Well, the strategic plan in terms of, you know, customer segmentation and, you know, what are you going to do? Where are you going to move completely changed? I think the goal of building a great team was only accelerated. Um, by the fact that the pandemic happened because immediately you had a reason, right, which is always easy when you're going through a change uh, process, right? It was like, guys, we have to do something, right? So I didn't have to go out and make a big speech about we've got to change the world. It was like, no, we have to, or we're not going to have a job. Um, And it really brought people uh, together. And immediately, like right after the pandemic happened, as an example, we had to make some tough decisions about, Who are we going to keep and what did we want to be and what could we do, right? So for about 12 weeks, we were doing all different sorts of like small projects. We were reaching out to customers. One of our customers um, makes the pieces that go to make bike lanes, you know, like the um, posts that hold up bike lanes. So we reach out to them. They said, hey, we've got an opportunity uh, in Europe because they want to build more bike lanes and walk. You know being able to walk different places so we reached out to them they reached out to their customer we built a bunch of small little pieces that went in the ground to be able to facilitate that and we all pulled together there were legitimately days we have a delivery truck here um there were legitimately days when i drove the delivery truck uh to go pick something up or drop something off or we were out of something um which is a whole other story for a, a different <laughs>
0: but you know, you talk a couple times there, like being able to pivot quickly to engage the customer. Like you tell that story about, hey, one of our key customers has an opportunity in Europe and that everything is shifting and you quickly listen to that need and made it happen. What are those steps that you take in that process to really make sure that you're connected and engaged with your customers? I mean, is that that's something internally, culturally that you preach? Is that, you know, was that something facilitated by necessity? I mean, that customer centricity and keeping an ear to the customer, I think that that's a very common component of very high functioning companies. How do you approach that personally?
2: Yeah, this is probably, you might or might not be able to put this in there because I shall, uh, you know, I, I steal shamelessly from my experiences in the past. I don't pretend to be the smartest guy. Uh, Starbucks had a really simple thing that I learned when I was like 18 years old there and they preached it. Like, I mean, it was like the beat of the drum. It was like connect, discover, respond, connect, discover, respond. And that has carried all the way through my career. Your very first job is to connect with the customer the same way I want to connect with you at the beginning of a podcast. I want to make it conversational. I want there to be a connection so that I can discover what you really are looking for and what you really need. And then the third part is respond. You got to be able to execute, right? And that's where that leadership component comes in of bringing everybody together to be able to do it. So I think it first and foremost starts with that ability to be able to connect. And that's not just me, right? That's the inside salesperson. That's the shipping person, right? You should be looking for connections at every interaction. I preach to my people that these are not transactions, right? These are opportunities to connect. Um, and every transaction is an opportunity to connect, even if it's a bad one, right? It's an opportunity to, you know, right your wrong and an opportunity to inherently build a culture and a value system that that trans- transcends.
0: So, you know, it sounds like, like you know, and you've used the word culture a couple times there. You know, even the way you explain that, like I, I think we can assume, but I'd love a little little clarity and maybe some additional color here. Like that that cultural vision you have for the company, it it sounds like that connection with the customer is really paramount there. I mean, one, I, I guess is that is that accurate? Like is that one of your major cultural underpinnings?
2: Absolutely. I think, uh, culturally we want to connect with the customer. We think that's the most important thing, you know, in die casting, you're thinking, well, you're making millions and millions of parts. How can you connect with the customer? I think one of the things that we're really trying is we have a really great engineering staff, um, who's been on the other side, they've been on the design side, so they have their hearts in design. So they're really able to connect with the customer and create something that's manufacturable yet suits kind of their purpose. Um, so I think culturally, absolutely, that's a place where we think value is created and a place where we really stand out. Um, and I think the other important part of the culture is, is that, you know, we want to people are how you get things done, right? The employees in inside are how you make things happen. So I think culturally, it's really important, you know, same thing for us to be able to pivot and do the things that are necessary so that our employees can serve our customers. And like we were talking about earlier, one of the great things about working for a small company is, is that you can do things that matter to people if you listen and understand. Immediately when this happened, they shut down the schools over a year ago here. We immediately got with our employees and said, hey, do you need to work different shifts, right? What can we do so that you can accommodate and you know can be a good parent and try to be at two places at one time? You know What makes sense? And little things like that that don't cost a lot of money, they're just about really connecting and discovering and then being able to respond to what the employee wants. Uh, I mean, they, the payoff is huge.
1: Wow. So you've covered a tremendous amount of ground in a really difficult time. When you look back at this past year and all you've learned and all you've accomplished and what you've transcended uh, being a key What are you most proud of from your first year at the helm of Pacti? It's a really tough
2: question um, because I inherently, your mind's always like, what would I do differently? Right. That's immediately where your mind goes. You're like, oh, if I could do it all over again, you know, what would I do differently? I think the first thing is that uh, we survived, which I know probably uh, doesn't sound like that big of a deal. But um, like I said, I used my own money to buy my company. It's not like I had, you know, millions and millions of dollars sitting on the sideline. So being able to just survive and make it through, um, I think uh, in the first year was really something great. I would kind of, the second part of that answer is like, well, fundamentally, how did you do that? And I think it's that I was blessed with a really great uh, leadership team who kind of everybody grouped around and we just figured out a way to make it happen. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that's something that I'm proud of that I was able to bring people together to ultimately achieve a result that I think not only am I proud of, but, but they
1: are proud of. Yeah. Now, were you, did you know when you uh, took on Pack Dye that you had the gift of such a great team or was that something that you uncovered as the year unfolded? Uh, I think that people have risen
2: to the occasion. You know, uh, I think, uh, our supervisors, you know, all boats, uh, rise with the tide. Uh, and I think that everybody has risen to the occasion. So I would say they all had it inside them. Uh, and the con, you know, this situation brought out the best in them and, and made everything possible.
1: Nice. So to get a little bit personal, um, you know, you've worked retail, you've worked manufacturing, you could have lived out your entrepreneur dream in a variety of ways. Why did you choose manufacturing? What was it that to you? This is the right opportunity. This is where I want to take all my money and invest in my future. What What was the, the thing that made you choose manufacturing? Maybe I was drinking when I decided <laughs>
2: I'll start over. I'll start over. (laughs) Uh, No, in all seriousness, I mean, we still make stuff, right? And that's really cool. You know, it is still cool to make stuff, and it is still cool to uh, be able to stand behind a product and look at it. We make a lot of components for semis and for trucks, right? it's very cool to see one going down the road and be like, boy, we made that from nothing. It was literally a piece of metal. Right. And the people in this building made that. Um, I think that that, uh, you know, when you're in retail, you're making experiences, but we get to make experiences and cool stuff. So it's like the combination fundamentally of both.
1: Nice. So, you know, You've talked about establishing a great team and some of your leadership views, and I'd like to dig a little bit deeper in that. What is it that you think, you know, are the attributes or the qualities that make a good leader? I'm curious to, to hear. Yeah. I mean, there's all different sorts of leaders,
2: right? I mean, I think there's like policy leaders, you know, who are really good at at policy There's like strategic leaders who are really good at at strategy. Um, The best leaders that I've ever worked for fundamentally are the ones who can bring everybody together and bring the best out of people to create great results. Um, So I think the number one leadership quality that I think is probably the most critical and leaders that I've worked for um, who I would deem, you know, really successful and, uh, my own leadership style, how I try to emulate it is, is how do I bring people together to get the best results for the customer and for the people doing the work?
1: Now, did you, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. You're fine. Um, did you see any difference when you were looking at leaders in retail versus manufacturing? Was there any difference or were there more commonalities than differences? more
2: commonalities than differences. It's like driving a car, right? I mean, driving a Fiat is a little bit different than driving a Ford F-350, but you still gotta get the car from the grocery store to your house, right? You sit lower, you turn, maybe you talk a little differently, um, but fundamentally it's all the same. There's nuances like in anything, but I think those are more culturally driven to the company as opposed to being a retail or a manufacturing Leadership
1: difference. Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, now that you've had a year of working with a smaller company under your belt, is there any difference that you see in leadership between a small enterprise and a large enterprise?
2: Well, the one main difference is is from a skill set perspective, I mean, I, I have nobody to manage up to, right? You know in big companies, you're only as good as your next boss thinks you are. Right. So you've got to spend a lot of time making sure that your next boss thinks you're pretty good. Uh, In a small company, it really the numbers speak for themselves. Right. I get on the scale every single day and it's like, am I doing a good job or not? And it's going to the feedback's instant. Right. Am I making my numbers? Am I connecting with my customers? Am I doing am I doing all the things? So that changes your leadership style a little bit because you spend time, uh, trying to achieve the result for your customer and internally for your employees. I no longer have this like third piece, um, where I have to create a result to make sure somebody else thinks I'm doing a good job. My customer and my employees are my laser focus.
1: Nice. So you mentioned that you modeled uh, some of the leaders in your past. You know, can you share with us a couple of your mentors that were had the biggest impact on you in your formative years? And then what was the lesson you took from from that mentor or mentors?
2: I've had so many good mentors I could list off. I got really lucky right so i i could name i could spend an entire podcast but no one would care right <laughs> uh naming off like the list it could be like the emmy awards i want to thank this guy i want to thank this guy um but there's probably like a couple that really uh changed the trajectory of my career uh i think early on in career the first was a leader named uh Ravi, and he fundamentally gave me exposure at a very young age right at 24 25 years old i was sitting around an executive table And that exposure just allows you to understand what's going on, right? So you have all the different pieces of the puzzle. It's a different language. There's a language of business. And if you don't have exposure to it, you get exposed maybe in your mid to late 30s. It's like, oh my God, where did all these words come from? You know, you know them, but you don't have the exposure to be able to just fit in. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the next set of mentors who really changed uh, the trajectory of, of my life and my career be Ross Pliska and Tim Warning. And they fundamentally believed in me. They helped me make that switch from uh, HR to sales, which I was like the only female, you know, in the whole place. And it was like, Elizabeth, you're not mechanically inclined and you don't, you're going to sell train parts. Like this is, this is what you're going to do. Like no one, you, you fire and hire people, Elizabeth. you're going to sell train parts, you know, they uh, took that leap of faith in me. And and that was great. And I think uh, the last mentor that I had, his name was Red Lewis, and he recently passed away. So he's like near and dear in my heart in this particular moment. He actually owned PDQ. He sold PDQ to Dover in 1998. So I met him when I lived in Green Bay. Um, We frequented many of the same establishments. And when I had decided that I was gonna buy my own company, um, I was talking to him about it kind of all the time. And when I needed like a little inspiration, I'd go and see him and he'd always like, give me just immense amounts of energy. At the time I was looking at buying a train parts business. And I remember very clearly this question that I asked him, I said, what the train part business is heavily regulated. And I said, what if the regulations change? What if this whole thing changes and I spent all my money and I bought this company? Uh, you know, then what do I do? I'm just, I'm screwed. Right. And he said to me mm-hmm. something, and he's a very clear thinker. And he said, Elizabeth, I'm going to tell you right here and now you're definitely smart enough to figure this out. So if that happens, you're smart enough. So just take that off the table. Like, that's just a fact. He said, you have to answer this one question. And he didn't want to use the word balls. Cause he was like trying to be like, you know, a, you know, good, a good person or whatever. And he said, you have to ask yourself, do you have the kahunas to do it? And he's like, cause at the end of the day, you'll figure it out. And from that moment on, I was like, I have to buy a business. I have to. And I was like, because I do have the guts. I am smart enough. And I do have the guts. I have to do it. So he, he's the one who kind of like gave me the push off the ledge and was like, just stop making PowerPoints and stop like putting things in a box. And is this company going to grow? And is this going to happen? Just
1: go buy something and make it work. Those are definitely words to live by um, and, you know, lives on in, in you to this day. Yeah,
0: so. Yeah, it comes back to that, like being able to deal with fear. Like a lot of times we talk about fearlessness, but like leaning into that, you know, And like you said, Dana, like the having mentors, you know, especially somebody that's going to instill that in you. It's clear that that you've taken a lot of those words to heart. And I know we're kind of coming up to time here and I feel like we've only scratched the surface, but I'd like to kind of turn that mentor question on you, Elizabeth, and, and let's play hypothetical because I think this is a question that you're really going to uh, going to bring home is let's pretend that you got to be your own mentor and you're sitting at that establishment with a the, with the young Elizabeth. Um, what words of advice would you give to her
2: hmm mm-hmm. I think about this all the time uh, because I enjoy, uh, I, like I said, I try to pay it forward and I had so many people who uh, gave me breaks and believed in it. So I, I kind of, I think about this all the time and I think there are really four things. Uh, the first is very simple. You have to stay disciplined, right? I mean, it's a grind. All these people who became successful, they didn't do it by luck. They didn't do it because they just had a great idea. They were disciplined and they worked really, really hard. So the second thing is you got to work hard, right? You can't just show up and be like, well, I'm so good at this and kind of just ease your way through. Um, I think you always have to have fun. Uh, I think that is advice that I would give to myself and to anyone. But I think the biggest piece of advice that I would give is that if if I could talk to my younger self, I would say that you have to dream big from the beginning right it took me so long um, to be able to say the words with confidence i want to run my own business i remember the year was like 2010 and a big corporate executive was visiting midland manufacturing i was an hr manager like i was i don't want to say nobody but i was like not significant to this person right and i remember the first time those words came out of my mouth i was introducing myself to the employees And one of them asked what I wanted to do. And I thought about it for a second. I was like, Oh, like the right corporate answer is I want to be this HR executive and partner and do all these things. But just in my gut, I was like, I want to run a business someday. I know that's what I want to do. And the first time it came out of my mouth, all of a sudden, then you start believing it. Right. It's like, Oh no, I can do that. Oh no, this is possible. And then people also start seeing that you, it is possible. Right. Not only do you see it, but then people start to jump onto your dream and it's like, oh, no, you probably could do that. So if I could mentor myself, uh, I would have told myself to dream bigger and get those guts earlier.
0: Birds have power, though I do have to say, I am very surprised that there was ever an iteration of you that did not follow rule number 3 There, always have fun. I don't know why that is. But, you know, really, I think that that. you know, we, we've kind of talked about, like, jumping into all these new opportunities. But, like, that fourth point there, like, just put it out there. Put it in the universe and say it. Like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of funny. Like, you tell that story the first time you did that, now you're here telling your entrepreneurial story. You did speak it into existence. And that's, that's incredible, you know. And, and, like, thanks so much for sharing it. Like I said, I, I feel like we only scratched the surface. We definitely need a follow-up. Um, maybe, maybe on the idea of connecting with customers, I don't know, that, uh, that, that, felt good, but I don't know. Um, so, you know, whenever we wrap up these episodes, though, we've, we've got to, we've got to do pack die justice. This is your chance to maybe connect with some new customers because we've got a lot of manufacturers in the audience. Here's your shameless plug.
2: Yeah, I feel like Colton, we already kind of did our shameless plug, uh Pacti differentiates itself uh in two ways number one with its employees we want to connect with the customers and we want to give them what they really want and two we have a great engineering team that you know we are here to make other people's dreams come true so we work with a lot of young entrepreneurs we recently just spoke to a guy who in the pandemic uh, has started making weights uh with skulls they're really amazing and we kind of helped him figure out a way to manufacture his product at an affordable price point. Uh, it's things like that, that we enjoy doing and we're really good at. I'm
0: going to have to follow up for a link there. I might, uh, might help, help get some business for you indirectly. <laughs> but, um, no, that, uh, that's, that's great. I mean, Dana, you, you have any closing questions too?
1: No, I just, um, you know, having had the opportunity to work with you at pdq and now seeing like hearing your transition to pack die and what inspired it i i just think it's such a great story so thank you for sharing it with us yeah no thank you and hopefully the dream and
2: the story continues and only gets better i'm sure there'll be some pitfalls there always is but those are actually where the best stories come from no doubt
0: but um, yeah, Elizabeth. Again, I mean, we can't thank you enough. I mean, the, this whole series is really, you know, helping about inspiring the next generation. And I think there's a lot of people out there looking to make a transition to entrepreneurship. You know, and, and I think this was a great way to to give them some real actionable advice. So you know, not not only for us, but on behalf of our audience, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. And yeah. uh, you know, You're looking welcome. forward to talking to you again
2: women have a place at this table. You know, a lot of times ladies think that they can't be manufacturing leaders. I'm not a technical person. You know, I don't have any like amazing technical skills. Uh, I would argue the fundamentals of leadership, you know, they, they transcend everything.
1: Well said. Those are good words to, uh, to depart on that, that um, because that's why we started this series was really to help uh, reach out to young women in manufacturing so that they can see themselves and see themselves in the future of manufacturing. Because it's a fascinating industry with lots of opportunity for women. Tons, um, tons. Yeah. And women like you uh, help, help show that it is without a doubt um, something that you can dream in and accomplish. So thank you.